Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green, and in this episode, we're going to be discussing the life and times of Hassan al-Banna, the man who founded the Muslim Brotherhood. Hassan al-Banna was born in a small town in Egypt in 1906. After training as a school teacher, in 1928, he founded the Society of Muslim Brothers, better known as the Muslim Brotherhood. Over the following decades, it would become the most important organisational vehicle for the spread of political Islam, sometimes called Islamism. Over the next 45 minutes, we'll be talking about the circumstances and motivations that led Al-Banna to found the Muslim Brotherhood. We'll be talking about the evolution of the organisation under his leadership until his assassination in 1949. And crucially, we will be talking about the ideas that Albana spread through his publications and crucially through the members and followers of the Brotherhood. To help us understand the career of Hassan Albana, I'll be joined in this conversation by Gudrun Kramer. Gudrun Kramer is Professor of Islamic Studies and former founding director of the Berlin Graduate School of Muslim Cultures and Societies at the Free University in Berlin. Among her many publications is a biography entitled simply Hassan Albana, that was published by One World in 2010. Hello Gudrun, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Thank you. Well today we're going to be speaking about Hassan Albana, the founder of the Muslim Brotherhood. To begin with, perhaps could you describe the, the Egypt in which uh, Albana was raised? Albana was born in 1906, at a time when Egypt was in a process of change, although we should perhaps not think of rapid social change there. It was gradual, it was involving the rural population to which he belonged, it was involving the urban population, uh, a process that had been set in motion by rulers within the Ottoman um, Empire, so it predated the British occupation of the country, of Egypt, in 1882. But of course, by the time Banna was born and grew up, first in a rural, then in an urban context, the British presence in Egypt was firmly established and he was very much aware of it. So, slow change, social change, intellectual change, political change, that he became aware of and addressed first on an individual basis, together with a small group of friends, and then in the organized fashion uh, of his um, association of Muslim brothers, founded in 1928. And before we get onto that, I mean, the, the, the place where he's born, he's born in town Mahmoudia, which is on a, it's a trade port, isn't it, on, on a canal. And so he has this kind of rural life in a way, but, but it, presumably in some sense, a, a sense of the wider world from within this, rural enclave of, uh, of a wider world passing through uh, by ships? Well, one should not think of Mahmoudiyya as a, as a port. It was inland within the Egyptian, the Nile Delta. 
It was set on a canal built in the 19th century. Um, and it was, I think, quite typical of much of Egypt of the time, in that it was inhabited by people who lived in what was a large village or small provincial town, uh, many of whom had moved in from the countryside. In fact, his own family, both on his father's and his mother's side, were peasants, felahs, felahin, as the Egyptians said and still say, actually. So it was, it was a modest place linked to a larger world through trade and people coming through, but it was not really exposed to the world. It was not sitting on the Mediterranean uh, with a long history of uh, maritime trade. So let's think of it as a small place, very typical of the Egyptian provinces, um, open to the world to a certain extent, but not a hub. Now, it's very interesting to see that with um, Hassan al-Banna moving from one school to the next, he also moves from one town to the next, and the next town is Damanhur, which was a trading commercial set center. That was a real center, again, in the Nile Delta, and then ultimately to Cairo. And I say ultimately because not only was he older by the time, but of course Cairo was the the biggest city in the country, um, very old, uh, very diverse, uh, a real hub, a metropolis, if you like, large, alive. Um, and so he moved from a rural, small town context to a medium-sized uh, context to the metropolis. And of course, with this, his not only the context changed, but also his outlook on this context. <laughs> he's making these journeys he's making these journeys through his education isn't he and uh, and can you tell us about that part of his education particularly his, his religious influences and indeed the kind of the religious environment that he comes from his father was a was a watchmaker wasn't he I think or watch seller by profession but uh, but also an, an imam a muezzin who calls the prayer in the, the local mosque so I wonder if you could kind of situate his education and indeed the kind of the religious context of that, and, and perhaps in particular with regard to his place vis-a-vis -vis what we might call the, the religious establishment in Egypt, whether the, the grand sheikhs, the, the ulama, the educated, learned ones of, of Al-Azhar, the great medieval seminary in Cairo, or indeed the, the many hereditary Sufi sheikhs that, that, that were um, the religious authorities for so much of the countryside and the small towns. Hassan al-Banna is a very interesting figure in that he, he represents the kind of crossover and blending of diverse traditions um, and, and contemporary challenges, if you like. His father is also very interesting because as a watchmaker and a man with some religious training, although not with a formal degree, he was deeply steeped in Islamic learning, but of a modest kind. He never attended Al-Azhar, the big mosque come university. He attended a smaller college, but he had learning and he was respected by his community and he was a very pious man who combined interest in 
the tradition of learning in Islamic reform. That's also interesting because here we see it in the provinces and Sufism. That is to say the grand and very diverse tradition of what has been called Islamic mysticism in Western languages. Not entirely correct, too narrow in many senses, but captive of this major concern of Sufis to fill their lives and minds and hearts with God rather than just following his prescriptions, the law. So the father already brought the son close to a kind of Islamic spirit that tried to be true to the grand tradition, reform it and fill it with emotion, with Sufi devotion. And this kind of spirit was in a way then transformed, gradually transformed by the son, by Hassan, who attended a government school, a kutab, that is to say a traditional Quranic school, uh, and supplemented this learning, the formal learning obtained in government schools by instruction through Sufi sheikhs in his free time. Quite characteristic of the time, quite known in other religious traditions as well. It's nothing uniquely Islamic, but it was distinctive because in this particular case, you have the formal education, you have the informal education, and for somehow Hassan al-Banna seems to have been able to, to create something cohesive and coherent out of this, well, variety of influences. <laughs> marked him out and I think made him special was this drive to set things right. As a young man he must have been pretty difficult. I imagine living in his neighborhood and seeing him correcting me all the time, telling me that this was wrong and that was not Islamic enough and that I should mend my ways and pray the right, right way and not look the wrong way and not eat this and not drink that. He must have been obnoxious and very sure of himself. Strangely enough, he attracted people through his zeal and devotion. So he collected around him a number of equally young men. These were teens, uh, young men in their well, 14, 15, 16 year olds who made it their business to set things right and take the community back to where it belonged, that is the true and right Islam of the time of the Prophet Muhammad and his contemporaries who were to be the models for modern, modern Muslims in everything, in their daily lives, in the way they, they thought of Islam, in their piety and in their devotion that could be carried to the battlefield. This is taking place. This sort of he's beginning as of his role that he's carving out for himself very much, really, as a as a religious leader, rather than in a sense being given that as part of a sort of some hereditary background or, or an education through Al Azhar. This is taking place presumably in his period in in, in Damanhur, so quite early in his life, as he's moving through these provincial towns and 
He's around 20, no, around 17, I think, when he moves to Cairo. Is that right? Yes. Perhaps you could sort of take us through those those st- stages of his education as he's moving from th- this from Mahmoudia, this much smaller rural town, to Damanhur, following his, his education as a as a school teacher, isn't he? I mean, this is the, the, the education. Not yet, yes, not yet, yes, not yet. And then to Cairo. Well, it's interesting if you... The, the only information we have on this early period is really his his own description of it, the so-called memoirs, which were probably drawn up by others in the 19, late 1940s with some elements of his own writings in them. So what he tells us is that, yes, he was basically self-driven. He wanted to enjoin right and forbid wrong, as the Quran puts it. He wanted to be the one who who warns his fellow Muslims of their wrong ways and and puts them on the right track again. But he also tells us that it was teachers, both at the government school and among the Sufis he uh, he joined, who, who encouraged him and told him to march on on this path and, and lead others to uh, the right end. So in a way it was, yes, a self-appointed task, but he was also encouraged by his elders and betters. And the interesting thing was that this included teachers at the government school. Um, A helpful reminder of the fact that we should not think of Egyptian government schools as secular institutions only. Yes, they were not set up by the religious establishment, but religion still played a major role in them quite comparable to what happened in Europe at the same time, most countries of Europe in any event. So, yes, he gradually moved on. And when he reached Cairo, he was about 17 um, and very much determined to devote his life to what he called the Islamic mission, Dawah, a well-established term which expects people, Muslims, to speak out for their belief, defend it, and invite others to live the right kind of Islamic life or to join Islam altogether if they're not Muslims yet. So he had this sense of mission. And at the school he attended, or the college, he was able to to advance on the path because it was the Dar al-Ulum, established in 1872 as a college to educate teachers of Arabic, of Arabic, which was only which was by and large taught on the basis of the Qur'an, only taught by Muslims in government schools, but not by men educated at Al-Azhar. So a very interesting institution which came out of this modernizing uh, efforts of the late 19th centuries. There he gained more knowledge, Islamic knowledge. Um, He also learned about pedagogy. Um, never learned a foreign language. He only spoke Arabic, but he spoke it well. He learned about the Arabic language. Uh, He was interested in poetry, not just Islamic poetry, by the way. And he saw modern life as it could be experienced in the big city with its foreign influences and local influences and what is characteristic in his observations is that he puts everything that he dislikes on the foreign presence, declaring that prostitution and music and drugs etc. were all the result 
of the foreign presence in the country, which of course, historically speaking, is not true, because you have an indigenous uh, tradition for all of those phenomena, and you have an indigenous tradition of critique of all those phenomena. But that's what he felt very strongly when he graduated in 1927. He saw himself a young man, full of vigor and rigor, um, as someone called upon to teach his fellow Muslims Islam properly, to make an impact. And I think it's useful to think in these modern terms because his main concern was not to to launch into learned debates and explore the intricacies of Islamic law and philosophy and theology and what have you. His idea was to make Islam relevant to ordinary men and possibly also women, to make it relevant, to make it the driving force that could make Islam strong again and therefore also make the Muslim community strong again, and as part of the Muslim community, the Egyptian nation. So he had this very strong sense of mission at, the, at an age which was still relatively young. He was barely 21 at the time. And we've talked about couple of his influences as a young man, the, the impact of the, the, the Sufi brotherhoods and the Sufi sheikhs who taught him so much about the, that interior devotional aspect of Islam. And we've talked a, a bit about the, the British presence, that the, he, was, uh, he was born around 25 years after the, the, the British had, 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 had seized control of Egypt in 1882. And, and in many ways, he's, he's defining his religiosity or his moral vision against, as you say, what he sees perhaps in, incorrectly as being uh, British, Imperial, Western European, or indeed perhaps in some ways a Christian presence in Egypt. But this is other influence, isn't there, that he starts to take on board uh, during his youth. And that's the influence of the, 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 the hugely influential Arabic journal Al-Manar, the, the Lighthouse, which had been founded in 1898, a few years before um, his birth. And has often been seen as the, the, the magazine that promotes what will become the Salafi movement, having been founded by Rashid Rida, someone who's sometimes seen as being the, the founder of, of the, the, the Salafi movement in Islam. So perhaps could you position him in relation to this evolving Salafism and its, 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 um, its mouthpiece, then the journal Al-Manar, The Lighthouse? Already his father had been uh, committed to Islamic reform and this commitment was inspired by what we call the historical Salafi movement, this drive to make Islam relevant again, to reform it, to make it recapture the spirit of the first generations of Muslims and thereby to empower Muslims to face the challenges of modernity and the colonial presence. So. This influence had been there, and when in Cairo, Hassan al-Banna himself sought out people, men, uh, scholars, journalists, even uh, Rashid Rida himself, uh, who had taken part of this drive to reform and modernize Islam. So, al-Manar was well known to him. He must have read it regularly. And he, he used it as one of the influences, one of the... Uh, sources from which he drew his ideas. So it was Sufism of the sober kind, it was Salafism of this moderate reformist uh, type, 
and it was Egyptian patriotism that provided him with the with the basic tools out of which he created his own um, construction, if you like. Yes, he was very much um, in this fold of Salafi reform, and not a major contributor to it. He was not a thinker. He was not an original thinker. What is his uh, characteristic gift is that he, he, he was successful in translating this kind of reformist, Sufi, patriotic, if not nationalist, spirit into action, putting Islam to work, as a major scholar put it, putting Islam to work, making an impact on society, translating the ideas of the Salafi reformers, who were still in their majority learned men and all journalists, translating them in a way that ordinary men and women men, most of all, could understand these ideas and implement them. That was his concern. He thought that if you thought the right thing, that was all well and good, but it was not not, not enough. What really mattered was that you changed yourself. The individual changed himself or herself, changed the community, and thereby made Islam relevant to his or her own present, presence, immediate context, and therefore created something out of this spirit of reform. And that was, that was his distinguishing, dis distinctive mark. The means by which he does this ultimately in his great legacy has been the foundation of the Muslim Brotherhood, isn't it? The organization he founded, the Jamaat al-Ikhwan al-Muslimin, the Society of the Muslim Brothers. And this takes place um, when he's uh, around 22 years old, isn't it? He's moved from, from Cairo to the town of Ismailia on the Suez Canal. He's been appointed as a, as a school teacher there. And, and it's the following year in 1928 that he founds this organization, which will have many sub-organizations within it, the Muslim Brotherhood. Can you talk us through the, that kind of that foundational moment and then perhaps some of the, the early evolution of, of this organization, the Muslim Brotherhood? The first thing we have to remember ourselves, remind ourselves of is that Ismailia was the head of the Suez Canal Company. So in Ismailia, Hassan al-Banna was faced with a completely different socio-economic structure compared to what he had seen in either Mahmudiya or Damanhur or Cairo. It was a city split in two halves, one native, Egyptian, the other colonial. And what he tried to do was mobilize Muslims to create a successful, strong organization to face the colonial presence and, as I said before, make Islam strong again. Now, the beginnings were very modest. <laughs> Again, follow his own account, he gathered around him a small group of young men, all of modest background, some education, but not too much of it, who appointed him as leader. And that is very important. He did not seek out a leadership role. He did not put himself forth as leader. He was chosen by others because of his charisma. And they put their trust in him. 
to guide them, to guide them, and that was the word, guidance, to guide them to a successful life that would make them good and strong Muslims in their daily practices and on a larger scale. And the important thing was that we think of this small group that called itself the Muslim Brothers, not a political party, not a club, no, the Muslim Brotherhood, as a political organization. And yes, it touched on the political sphere, but the prime concern in the beginning was to construct and reconstruct reformed Islam in the lives of ordinary people. And it began with evening classes, summer schools, summer camps, teaching instruction in the correct way of understanding Islam. And that is very important. He was not into debate and, and critical inquiry. His concern was to give guidance and correct instruction. And for this purpose, he lectured, he um, organized uh, summer camps, etc., and he wrote uh, treatises, articles, etc., which he gave to his followers to study, learn by heart, if possible, and put into practice in their daily lives. So that was the primary uh, concern. Now, it is really remarkable to see how this small and insignificant group, which did not stick out among similar enterprises at the time, evolved into a major force, even though the, the biggest growth happened after World War II only. We're now in the late 1920s and the early 1930s, where this the kinds of activities um, and small groups of Muslim brothers were able to establish themselves in various parts of the of Egypt, not just in the capital, that is important, not just in Ismailia and in the Suez Canal zone, not just in the major trading hubs of the Delta, not just in Cairo to where he moved in 1931, but also in the provincial towns of Middle and Upper Egypt. And that was something new. Two things were entirely new about Hassan al-Banna and the Muslim Brotherhood. One, that they did not come from the elite. They did not come from the established centers of education. Um, they were not primarily active as journalists through their writings, etc. But they created an organization with a distinctive profile, sense of cohesion, corporate identity, established themselves in the urban centers of Upper and Lower Egypt and attracted young men. Now, if we think of the Muslim Brotherhood today, we see old men leading the organization. That's completely different from what the Muslim Brotherhood presented in the 1930s. It was an organization of young men of the lower middle class, urban, with some education, government education, modern education, some Islamic education, and driven by the, by the aim to give them power. It was a, a, a sense, of, to use the modern term, it was Islam seen as a tool of empowerment, of ordinary, I'm repeating this word, 
ordinary men who participated in their society and in the political system through Islam, because Islam gave them the right and indeed made it incumbent upon them to participate. So it was the sense of Islam as an obligation, Islam as a mission, and Islam as a source of entitlement and empowerment to speak up for the rights of Egyptians and Muslims against all those who repressed Islam and Muslims and Egyptians. So we're getting this real sense of, of Albana, but now his increasing number of followers. Within five years of the, the founding of the Brotherhood, by 1933, there are around 15 branches, and there's this first general conference, what will be many general conferences in Cairo. That same year, in 1933, there's the foundation of a student section of the Brotherhood, and then a, um, a weekly uh, journal or, ma or magazine or even newspaper of the Brotherhood. And we get in the sense that, that this organization, Bana and now his growing number of followers, are, are outside of the religious establishment of the, the Sufi sheikhs, often hereditary, and the, the grand scholars of, of, of Al-Azhar, the, the, the medieval great seminary of Egypt, and also outside of the emerging political establishment of the nationalist Waft, uh, Waft uh, political party. But what role is the, the actual organizational structure of the Brotherhood playing in this empowerment? Because I think the, the Muslim Brotherhood as an organization is, is very, very novel and very, very effective in the way it creates uh, these various sub or substructures within its organization. Indeed, for women as well, as time goes on, there's not just the, mm. the Muslim Brotherhood, there's the, the Muslim Sisterhood, in a sense, isn't there, as a part of that, and, and indeed bringing women into it as well as part of its activities. So I wonder if you could talk through the, 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 the role of the structure and the organization of the Brotherhood in, in able to, to carry through uh, Albana's uh, agenda. The um, structure of the Muslim Brotherhood actually changed a lot over time. So it was malleable and there are few features that may be, could be seen as more or less stable. The first is the central, indeed pivotal role of Hassan al-Banna himself as the guide, the supreme guide, al-Murshid al-Am, a title taken from the Sufi tradition, by the way, but also used by Rashid Rida in his reformist uh, attempts. So the pivotal role of Hassan al-Banna, who not only directs the affairs of the society, but also is the source of all instructions attractive instructional material. So the Muslim brothers read his articles, they read his prayers, they read his treatises, they read his letters. Some of them have to be memorized. So he's really the, the mentor and guiding uh, force there with a very strong sense of power politics if anyone who opposes his ideas is sooner or later marginalized and and pushed out of the organization and there was critique of his um, leadership style his authoritarian leadership style but no one succeeded in replacing him the second um, feature that remained stable was this strong emphasis on cohesion brotherhood, um, solidarity, 
uh, unity and um, corporate identity with uniforms and emblems and insignia and songs, etc. And that was distinctive. It was not unique because at the same time the, the other the political parties, the Muslim Brotherhood was not a political party. The political parties also tried to give themselves more solid structure. But they had different social base and they did not have this very determined sense of creating this corporate identity. They had uniformed youth groups, rovers, green shirts, blue shirts, black shirts, white shirts, etc., as did the Muslim brothers, but they did not have this same kind of unity and leadership that the Muslim Brotherhood created under Hassan al-Banna. Um, as for the way the organization was structured, it changed, as, it, as I said before. At some point, uh, there was something called families uh, installed. Uh, at another point, the organization looked more like a regular party. So that was really fluid and adaptable to circumstance. But it always remained that the Muslim Brotherhood was clearly defined. You, you were a member or you were not. You could be an affiliate, you could be a sympathizer, but it was well-defined and Hassan al-Banna was the boss. <laughs> And by the war years during World War II, and of course Egypt is one of the major theatres for the, the British war effort in particular across North Africa, it's during the war years that the, the Brotherhood really expands a great deal, doesn't it? By 1944, there's an estimate of perhaps between 1,000 and 1,500 branches. And uh, so could you talk us through that later phase of his life leading up to his, his, uh, his assassination? The war years, ironically in many ways, helped to strengthen the Brotherhood. Even though um, the British tried to impose very strict control on the, on the country and the capital in particular, even though Hassan al-Banna was interned at some point for a short period. And yet, perhaps one of the reasons for the um, greater um, role of the Muslim Brothers was precisely this type of control and censorship which served to repress the established political parties, giving more room to others. And the Muslim Brothers, in contrast to the established parties, had much more space. They were not confined to politics. Theoretically speaking, they were not involved in politics at all. They were registered as a benevolent society. They were not allowed to dabble in politics, but of course they were of political relevance. So they were not restricted to the political field, parliament, elections, etc. They were not strong in the media and the press, very limited presence there, but they had the mosques, they had schools, they had the universities, they had private and public spaces to use, and they used them with virtuosity. Not just Sassan al-Banna, but many others as well. So there was enough space for them, um, and they used it in order to build up their forces within the countries and without. By the late 1930s, Muslim brother groups had been established in a number of Arab countries, and they used 
already from the late um, mid and late 1930s onwards the growing confrontation over Palestine uh, as one means to give a, a strong profile to them as a fight against imperialism and colonialism and Zionism. And that added to their appeal, their political appeal, their religious appeal. So to that extent, circumstances were perhaps even beneficial. And with the end of World War II and the economic situation getting very difficult, hardship faced by large segments of the Egyptian society, the call for change, political change, socioeconomic change, grew and the Muslim Brothers were one of the political actors able to draw on this growing unrest. It must also be said that by that time the Muslim Brothers had set up um, a clandestine uh, organization which is still not entirely decoded if you like. We still don't know exactly what happened, but it seems that in the early 1940s, some men close to Hassan al-Banna set up a secret organization in order to fight against colonialism, the British in the country and in Palestine. For this purpose, they even received government backing, some military training of students and others, but the secret organization grew and developed, and it's not entirely clear which role Hassan al-Banna played in it. Just what to, I think to, is... Just to be clear, the, the government back in this is the Egyptian government. This the Egyptian so government. so much conspiracy theory around the Muslim Brotherhood. This isn't the, the British government. Is it, it is clear? not the British. It's the Egyptian government. You're entirely uh, uh, right here. The Egyptian government, which was torn between well, loyalty towards the British and, of course, uh, the aim to make Egypt independent. So the training that was given to students, including young Muslim brothers, including members of the secret apparatus, was basically intended to, to train fighters in Palestine. But, of course, things were fluid and not so clearly defined, and you could train for one thing and use your skills in another arena. What Hassan al-Banna seems to have done is try to allow this secret apparatus to grow uh, without getting officially attached to it, linked to it. But he also does not have been able, doesn't seem to have been able to control it. So we don't know exactly whether the violence used by the secret apparatus in the course of the 1940s was sanctioned by the guide or not. Publicly he denounced violence used in Egypt, in Egypt, against British installations, against police stations and against Egyptian politicians, including the Prime Minister Anouk Rashi Pasha, who was assassinated by a member of the secret apparatus in uh, 1948. So the whole thing was ambiguous. The secret apparatus, apparatus existed. It prepared for jihad, for violent struggle. Uh, it was linked to the Muslim Brotherhood, but perhaps not an 
integral part of it, and Hassan al-Banna seems to have tolerated it, perhaps even encouraged some of his, its activities, but maintained a position that allowed him to publicly distance himself from all acts of violence that he did not approve of. In your biography of Albani, you described him as recreating Islam as a system that's intended to create a, a new Islamic man who lives in something or indeed creates a virtuous city. Can you tell us about that uh, core dimension of Albana's teachings? Albana was not original in this idea, but he had a very clear idea, holistic idea of what it meant to make Islam relevant to his own society, how to make it strong, vibrant and able to face the challenge coming from within and from without. And this holistic idea spoke to the individual, and that's very important. He thought of the individual as the building stone, the individual which had to form and reform his, and I'm saying his because he basically spoke to men, had to reform his own way of thinking, acting, dressing, eating, living, speaking to others, working. So everything had to be affected by this spirit of industrious, thrifty, busy activity for the sake of reform of the individual. But the individual was not the end. That was not the binding horizon, if you like. The, the end was to create a community that was, as I said, vibrant. Vibrant because it was made up of busy, industrial, active, productive individuals who lived their lives in the present, but with a strong sense of mission derived from the early times of Islam. So the present and the past were linked together through the spirit of industry and productivity, etc. And of course, anyone familiar with 19th and early 20th century thought is familiar with this kind of approach, uh, as it had developed in parts of Europe and in other parts of the world, this idea of self-help, self-help, self-improvement, moral uplift. And that's precisely what he adopted, adapted, and in a way dressed in an Islamic garb. I'm not saying that he invented something, that he only adapted it from elsewhere. He was no doubt inspired by these ideas of self-help, propagated among others by Christian missionaries, but he drew on Islamic sources to make it work in Egyptian society. So the individual was to be reformed, then reforming the family and the community and ultimately humankind. And that was the ultimate aim in, a, in an interesting inversion of the colonial vision of the white man's burden. Hassan al-Banna spoke of the Muslim man's burden to make humanity whole again through Islam. <laughs> And then he himself is assassinated in February 1949. Looking in the, over the 70 years since his death, 
What would you say is the legacy of Hassan al-Banna today? His family name, name means the builder, the constructor. And he was indeed the builder, the constructor of this organization, the Muslim Brotherhood, which was the first organized force in this newly emerging field of political Islam. So this is his role as a founder, someone who did things first, um, a major role. He was also the one who provided Muslim brothers with much of their ideas in the course of the 1940s, 30s and 40s, later overshadowed by Said Qutb, um, a major figure in the Islamist camp who joined the Muslim brothers in the early 1950s, then was uh, when the free officers had come to power in 1952, was later imprisoned, uh, wrote very influential works uh, propagating the need to practice jihad and who also declared the ruling elite in the country as being infidel, having deviated from the Islamic uh, path. He called them kufar, infidels, and we call this takfir. Um, excommunication is perhaps not the ideal word, word but it, it, it explains this um, effort to declare someone who thinks himself to be a Muslim or herself to be a Muslim as non-Muslim. Now, Al-Qutb Al was um, executed in 1966 and became a martyr of the Islamist case, certainly the most important voice among Islamists for decades. Seen in light of growing militantism, jihadism, and what many people call extremism, even among Islamists, Hassan al-Banna appeared as comparatively moderate, someone who preached jihad, but against the colonizer, against those who suppress Islam, who oppress Muslims, not against fellow Muslims. And that made him moderate compared to all those jihadis who declare either the entire ruling elite or Muslim society as a whole uh, as being infidel. Hassan al-Banna did not practice takfir. And he practiced something that made his entire teachings problematic to many because in many of his words he was quite strident, quite um, polemical, quite um, inciting even, speaking about Islam and the warrior heroes young Muslims had to emulate and the need for sacrifice and the art of death, etc. All celebrations of violence and death for the sake of Islam, martyrdom. In his actual politics, he was very cautious, arguing that, yes, these were the principles, these were the ultimate goals, but you had to be careful. You did not risk lives, Muslim lives and non-Muslim lives easily. You weighed the chances, you looked at realities and acted accordingly. So his words were often violent, his deeds were cautious. And of course that could set in motion different 
dynamics, either those who listened to his words and embraced jihad, or those who looked at his deeds, his pragmatism, and advocated this pragmatism. This is what many Muslim brothers did in the 1980s and 90s uh, and later, who looked back to Hassan al-Banna as the big and shining guiding founding figure of the organization, who had built up the organization, and who had not advocated strife that would tear apart the Muslim community. Professor Gudrun Kramer, thank you for talking to us today in Akbar's Chamber. Thank you. Da 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 da